save that for later, maybe. Well, it's interesting. I've heard over the years about the importance of your sermon title. And so this morning I have a sermon title that uh, may capture your attention. That's what they say. Your sermon title should generate interest in what you're going to talk about. And I generally put some thought into my sermon title that it captures the essence of what I'm going to say. And uh, this morning's message or sermon title, it'll be on the screen in a minute, but it's simply called this, A Love-Hate Relationship with People. So that, yeah, that might, that might just draw us in. And that's not my original sermon title. I'll tell you what that was in a few moments. But a love-hate relationship with, with people. And the reality is, maybe you know what a love-hate relationship is. It's when you love something and hate it at the same time. Like you can have a love-hate relationship with things, right? For instance, a love-hate relationship with things. Uh, you can have a love-hate relationship with, say, pizza. You love to eat it. It tastes really good, but you don't like what it does to your waistline. So there. Or maybe you have a love-hate relationship with technology and social media. You love how convenient and connected your life can be, and yet you hate the fact that you feel enslaved to your mobile device and your social media accounts. It's the classic love-hate relationship. How about some of you have had a love-hate relationship for a long time with the Detroit Lions? You love your home team. You love to watch them play. You just are tired of always being let down, right? And uh, maybe that's changing. Maybe that's changing. We'll see how that turns out next year. Or maybe it'll be the same old, same old, right? Get your hopes up and then... Uh, Today, though, I want to talk about a love-hate relationship, not with things, but with people, right? And maybe you've heard some phrases like this before, like, I would love life if it weren't for people, or I'm not the problem everyone else is, or the only thing really wrong with this world is everyone else in it, right? Stuff like that. You've heard those kind of comments. In fact, I went online and found a collection of comments here Uh, speaking to this kind of love-hate relationship that exists, right? I hate you because I love you and you let me down. That's an anonymous quote. Um, I hate it when your mind is telling you to stop loving someone, but your heart can't let go. Or I loved her, Uh, I still love her, though I curse her in my sleep. So nearly one is love and hate, the two most powerful and diverse emotions that control man, nations, and life. That's Edgar Rice Burroughs. There is love and hate cannot be avoided. You cannot feel one without the other too. Um, I broke my heart by falling in love with you, said somebody. Somebody else said, trust gets you killed, love gets you hurt, and being real gets you hated. All worth it. (laughs) The truth is that people get hurt all the time. It is only a matter of finding someone worth it all. And a couple more, I like this one. Silence has a voice. I know this because it screams when you are away. And finally, Pastor John Ortberg said, Art is built on the deepest themes of human meaning. Good and evil, beauty and ugliness, life and death, love and hate. No other story has incarnated those themes more than the story of Jesus. And so maybe that gives us a sort of a, a sense of the true dynamic that is involved in what we call this love-hate relationship and especially this love-hate relationship with people. And I had a question this morning, simply this, is there someone you are called to love where you struggle with a sense of hate? Like, you know, we're called to love everybody, right? That's what we just saw on that little short video. Um, Love your neighbor as yourself, but you struggle with a sense of hate towards this person. And maybe today some words will help us in navigating that relationship. So, very, very good. Um, 
Paradoxology, week three of this series, Paradoxology, navigating the tension in our worship, right? And we're taking two words, paradox, like the paradoxes in Bible, like the poor will be rich and the rich will be poor, right? Like the, the exalted will be humbled and the humbled will be exalted, those kind of paradoxes. And then we're kind of, how do we navigate those out in a lifestyle of our doxology, of our personal everyday worship? That's the concept of this series. And uh, last week we talked about two kind of, seems like conflicting verses like one verse kind of talks about the demands of the gospel like come and follow me take up your cross and follow me like the gospel is so demanding and the other is the verse that says you know come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest it's like the invitation to come and rest and we looked at the dynamics of those two verses and how they both really do complement each other when we see them through the lens of gospel today's paradox then is navigating our love hate relationship with people two passages i'll jump right in and um looks like he's having problems with the with the powerpoint there is a powerpoint but uh, might be having problems with it so you just have to guess on these filling these blanks in or i'll shout them out to you maybe but uh some of you get pretty uh worried about getting all your blanks filled in correctly but we're not that rigid here. Passage number one, though, let's jump right in. And this is a well-known passage. It's found in Mark chapter 12. Um, these are all on the handout. And there are maybe more handouts over there if you want to grab one with the scriptures. Or um, you can try to follow along quickly in your Bible. Mark 12, 29, Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. A very well-known passage, right? We understand that. Jesus summarized the whole law, all Ten Commandments, really all 613 Jewish laws, down into one simple command, or I guess a two-part command, loving God and loving your neighbor. And that takes us to Luke 14, and what was read earlier. And this is the lesser-known passage uh, presented to us today that, that gives us our paradox. Luke 14, verses 25 through 27, and here's what Jesus said. Now great crowds accompanied him, Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Disciple. And immediately we can see two passages that present a bit of a paradox, right? Like the key to life, the key to spiritual life is just love. Love God, love your neighbor, yeah, love your family, right? And then over here, no, if you want to be my disciple, you got to hate. Like you got to hate your, you know, you got to hate your, your, your parents and your kids and your siblings and even your spouse. That sounds like, like, wow, that sounds pretty harsh, right? And so how do we reconcile these two verses? We'll look at that this morning. In fact, we'll do three things this morning, really. And my original sermon title was almost this, that time Jesus told us to hate, right? That would be a pretty, that would be pretty, that would be a pretty strong sermon title too that might generate some interest. But um, we'll do three things this morning. First, if you don't understand the context of what Jesus says there when he says to hate, and many of you might, you may be able to figure out what he's saying there. But we'll explain that, make it very 
clear. And then number two, we'll see how we can apply this to our everyday life. What does this look like in the context of a lifestyle of worship, living out this paradox, and it can be messy at times. And then three, we'll see how the second verse actually helps us live out the first verse. We'll see how understanding this verse on hate can help us understand this verse on love and get the most out of that verse on love. And here's our big idea, right? Immediately, immediately we will uh, get some helpful insight into where we're going. Big idea. We're down about probably a dozen slides or so, Tim. Uh, I can't love others best if I don't love God most. That's our big idea today. We'll just see that kind of work, our, work, work its way out. We'll get a clearer picture of what that means. I can't love God best if I don't love God most. And we are called to love God, and we're called to love others. And what we need to be aware of is that in order to love others best, I have to love God most. And so I have three lessons for us today about navigating the love-hate relationship we have with people. How do I love? When and why would I ever have to hate? That kind of doesn't make sense, right? So there we are. Thank you, Tim. Good, good job. Um, sometimes, that's a, see, that's a love-hate relationship with technology because we love it until it lets us down. It's like, come on, where's our PowerPoint? Um, yeah. Uh, back to that verse again. Verse 25. Now, great crowds, Luke 14, 25. And we'll unpack all the way down to verse 33. We'll read more of this as we go through this this morning. Uh, verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Here's our first lesson that we need to see this morning in the text here. Um, Jesus... Uh, Jesus' words were often hard to hear and misunderstood. Jesus' words were often hard to hear and they were misunderstood. In the moment, in real time, when people are there listening to him, right, they're like, what? I mean, that was probably hard to hear. And, and this is not unusual for Jesus because sometimes he said things that were hard to hear. Even today, we have a tough time sometimes understanding or hearing what Jesus says. We might misappropriate or misapply his words. And we said last week the reason for that is really simple because before everything Jesus said before the cross was pointing us to the cross. Everything he said before the gospel was pointing us to the gospel. Excuse me. And so the problem we have here really is that we often miss the gospel in Jesus' teachings. We, we hear a teaching and we sometimes, we just miss the gospel. Like Jesus came for one sole reason, to hang on the cross and die. I mean, yeah, he came to walk in our shoes and, and to relate to our life and, 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 and uh, understand our experience. He did all of that. But his sole, his main, I shouldn't say sole, his main reason for coming was to hang on the cross and die and pay the price for our sins. And so everything he did was about going to the cross we often miss that in his teachings let me give you three examples of of times people just his words were hard to hear like in matthew 8 21 another of the disciples said to him lord let me go first before i come follow you let me go first and bury my father and jesus said to him follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead like wait what <laughs> that sounds kind of hard right and I don't think Jesus is saying here you shouldn't go back to a funeral or you shouldn't spend time with your aging parent. Or That's not what this is saying. But the, I think the context here is that this individual said, well, Lord, I'll come follow you, you know, 5, 10, 15 years when life works its, its way out, you know, when my, my, my dad passes on and things get a little, then I'll come follow you. And Jesus is just calling out, uh, countering his kind of excuses, saying, no, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Take up your cross. Follow me today if you want to be my disciple. And you can still spend time with your dad as well. 
So let the dead bury the dead, and that was certainly a hard, hard thing to hear. How about this one, right? Uh, in John 6, he had just fed the 5,000 with the fish and loaves, and the next day they all track him down because they want to make Jesus their king because who doesn't want a king who can feed you like that, like free food? Wow, sign me up. And Jesus taught a, his famous sermon uh, about the bread of life, and in that message he said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That'd be hard to hear, right? If you didn't see the gospel, if you didn't understand the gospel, if you don't see it through the lens of the gospel, it's like, what's he saying? And here's what it tells us, right, in verse 61 of John 6, when, men, when many of his disciples heard it, not the 12, but many of his disciples, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And down in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It's like, that was just too hard. There are some things Jesus says that are hard to hear and are misunderstood. Here's a third example. We said this one last week in, in, the, um, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, man, you know what? If you want to live a holy life, well, maybe you need to pluck out your eye and cut off your hand, right? And now Jesus wasn't really advocating that. But his point was, is that, uh, you know, in regards to your behavior, I mean, maybe you need to pluck out your eye and cut off your hand, what he was really saying in this sense was that rather than cutting off body parts to improve our behavior, he was telling us that we need to trust him as our savior. That's the point. That's seeing the gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's like, I'm a better option. Like, I can help you live a holier life than if you just chop off body parts. But again, sometimes Jesus' words were hard to hear and they were misunderstood. Now, here's the issue we face in our relationships sometimes, especially since we are, you know, like supposed to be Christians and we're following Christ and we're his, we're his ambassadors, and we'll talk about that again today. The reality is sometimes we are called to speak for God. Like the prophets of old, we're supposed to speak the truth into somebody else's life. And the question is, what about when I have to speak the truth into your life and it's like, but they're not going to want to hear that, God. That's going to be hard to hear they may not understand. They, they, they may not be open to that truth. What do I do? And uh, that's the question that we face all the time. Will we love that person enough to tell them the truth? Will we love God enough to share his truth? And that goes back to our big idea again, right? That I can't love others best if I don't love God most. If I'm going to love you best, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love God most, then I'm going to share God's truth with you. Let's look at a second lesson. That's the first lesson. Here's our second lesson this morning. Salvation is radically transformational. So you just need to understand this morning in this issue of love-hate relationships, especially with people, that salvation is radically transformational. And, and I, I'm just going to be honest. I think it's more transformational than most of us. Even I preach this all the time. I don't think I can really totally wrap my head around how transformational salvation is the moment that we are saved and come to faith in Christ. Back to verse 27. So moving forward in our text. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We talked about that last week. That was last week's, kind of one of the last week's paradox verses. And, and the reality is we talked about what this really means. Like we can look at this again as a huge demand, like a huge burden, like I'm saved. Now I've got to take up my cross and lug it through life. And maybe you've seen people who have done that. Like they get across and they walk across the country with their cross to, to, to illustrate, you know, and it's like, yeah, that's not really what the Bible Bible's talking about that's missing the mark the reality is is that simply taking up your cross and following Christ it's something we said last week we've already done 
If you have been crucified with Christ, if you are saved, you are crucified with Christ, you have in essence taken up your cross and gone up Calvary and you have been crucified with Christ. You have bore your cross. And we saw last week that Jesus, the Bible says, Jesus bore his own cross going to Calvary. And that, that was a literal cross. My cross is a figurative cross. It's just illustrating that when I was saved, I was in essence crucified with Christ. And that's what Galatians 2.20 tells us. And then when the Bible tells us that we need to take up our cross daily, it's simply telling us that every day we need to live out the gospel and work out our salvation. That was last Sunday's message. A lot of powerful stuff in there. If you missed that, you may want to go back and check that out. But here is the thing. What has happened to me that is so radical? Well, I became a new creation. Like my old man, my old sinful nature man was nailed to that cross, was buried in the grave, and when I rose, I rose a new person. And now I'm a new creation in Christ. And he is now my identity. I'm not defined by my past sins, my past behaviors, my, my past choices. I'm not defined by my past hurts. None of that. I'm now defined by Christ. He is my identity. And there are some impl implications then every day to living out that reality. To living out the reality that now I'm a new creation. So we go on in our text. L let's go on in our text here and look what he says next then. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And so he brings up this idea of counting the cost. And again, how do we hear that? I think we, again, can hear that as this huge burden, like, okay, I got saved, and I better count the cost, and boy, I got to take up my cross, and I got this huge burden that I got to carry through life, and yet the reality is the cross is not supposed to be a burden. It's where I bring all my burdens. It's the end of my burdens, right? That's the, that, that's the true reality of Scripture. So my Christian life shouldn't be this huge burden. And I think the reality of understanding this idea of counting the cost is realizing that I was not just saved from something. I'm not just saved from hell. I was saved to something. I was saved to this new, abundant life in Christ. And yeah, in this new life in Christ, I have some new responsibilities. Let me give you one passage, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We mentioned this last week. We didn't read it. But here's an example of, of, of my new responsibilities of, of, of this radical transformation in my life and what it means to count the cost. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the meaning of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. So there's two things in there we could pull out of that, right? That we are, I am a new creation. That's one of the, 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 the realities, the, the fact now I'm a new creation. We said last week, we talked about that word disciple and that word follow. And like you find the word disciple almost 300 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You find it a few times in, in the book of uh, about 20 times in Acts. When you get to the, the books that Paul wrote and James and John and Peter, you don't find that word at all. Like the Bible never calls us a disciple today. That word follow, like come follow me. Never find it in these, these, it's just not a concept that is applied to us. We are called saints. 
So instead of a disciple who follows Christ externally, we're called saints, and now the Spirit of God leads us internally. I'm a new creation. This is really something the disciples, when Jesus was on earth, didn't experience. But we do. It's this new reality. It's this radical transformation. Here's the problem. I'm a new creation. But if as a new creation, I live as my old man, I, I, I live and just embrace that life of sin and walk in the flesh, I'm just inviting conflict into my life. Conflict into my relationships. Conflict into, you know, conflict on the job. Conflict in my personal space. It's just a life of conflict. If I'm a new creation in Christ and living in the flesh, I'm inviting conflict into my life. And, and the more we live in the flesh, the greater the conflict will be. So counting the cost realizes that even before I'm saved, that when I'm, be, when I'm saved, if I respond to the gospel, I'm being invi- invited into a new existence. Oh, it's, a, it's an abundant life, but yeah, understand, you're going to be a new person with new desires, and, and the things of this world will be in conflict with your new desires, and of course the world won't like all of your new desires either. At the same time, and I, and I think we need to sometimes when we share the gospel, be more honest with people like, yeah, when you get saved, just understand, you're going to be a new person, you're going to be a new creation in Christ in conflict with the world, just, just saying. At the same time, after I'm saved, I need to count the cost and remember what I was saved to. I need to realize that if I don't live as a new creation, again, conflict is simply invited into my life. So that's one thing. And then I'm, I'm, a new, I'm an ambassador. I become an ambassador. I become a, a brand ambassador. That's the illustration I used last Sunday. I heard that somewhere. What a great illustration to be a brand ambassador. We're given the ministry of reconciliation to go out and tell people they can be at peace with God. How awesome is that? And to be this brand ambassador, it's like, you know, it's like the athlete that, that has the logo on his shirt or his pants or his shoes or his hat, you know, whatever, whatever brand he uh, endorses. Or the car, you know, the, the race car driver that has, you know, logos all over his car of all the companies that endorse him and that he endorses. He's a brand ambassador. We are brand ambassadors for Jesus Christ. That's the reality. Think about that. Think about uh, that verse back there, right? Instead of calling ourselves disciples, what about this? If anyone would be my brand ambassador, he or she must take up their cross every day and follow me. So maybe we're not called disciples today, but we're called brand ambassadors to an extent. And the reality is counting the cost means I realize I am a brand ambassador. I realize that if I don't live out the life of Christ, if I don't represent his brand, I'm really nothing more than a hypocrite. I'm like the Pepsi driver that's caught drinking a Coke, right? So look at this verse a minute in, in, in regards to this. John 13, 34. Thinking of love today, right? And loving other people and loving, loving people best. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So the old, the old covenant of, of law told us to love our neighbor as ourself. Look at the new covenant of grace, it tells us to love others as Jesus has loved us, as Jesus loves. I'm supposed to love not as I love myself, I'm now supposed to love as Jesus loves. Isn't that really radical? And think about this in regards to being a new creation in Christ. Look at the next verse, verse 35. By this all people will know that you are my, dis- my brand ambassadors or my disciples if you have love for one another. If I, just, if I just love like Jesus loves, I'll be a brand ambassador and people will know that I am a brand ambassador. But you know the beautiful thing hidden in that verse? Did you catch it? I'm a new creation in Christ. Christ is now my identity, right? 
So what can I do? If Christ is my identity, I can love like Christ. Like, I don't have to love like me. I don't have to love my neighbor like me. I can now love my neighbor like Jesus because he is now my identity. That's kind of the, the shift to the other side of the cross. Thank you, Tim. I can love others like Jesus because he is my identity. How awesome is that? How amazing is that? As we see the, the cross worked out in our relationships. Now, when, when you think about this, again, counting the cost. So we think about counting the cost, and again, we think like, okay, I got this huge responsibility, and I got to count the cost of my salvation. And I th- again, I think we miss it when we don't see it through the lens of the gospel. Because let me tell you something, I think this is really true. Counting the cost is not as much about your commitment to God as it is about recognizing God's commitment to you. Do you get that? Counting the cost is is not as much about, okay, i got to be committed to God. It's about recognizing how committed God is to you. And he gives us two illustrations in the passage here. And what I want you to understand is that when you were saved, when you were made a new creation, you got a heavenly father who said, I am committed to you. I am committed to working in you and working things out in you like we talked about last week. I am committed to fighting for you. He is, you have a God who is so committed to helping you experience the abundant life and helping you have healthy relationships and helping you navigate the tensions of life in your worship. So here's the two examples. First, what we read it, right? God is working in me. He talks about the guy building a building. He says, before you start building the building, make sure you got enough materials and enough money you can complete the task or you'll get halfway done and people will laugh at you. Like, what an idiot, Like. He built the building and couldn't finish it. Like, why didn't he make sure? And so that's the point. And the reality is, this is really recognizing that God will finish what he starts. What's Philippians 1, 6 say? Like, like, yeah. He who began a good work and you will complete it. So this, this idea it, in lens of the cross, counting the cost, is realizing I have a father who's not going to stop working on me. He, he's got all the resources to complete. Everything he wants to complete in me, he will complete it in me. I just have to trust him. That's counting the cost. The other illustration comes next, and God is fighting for me. This is the second illustration he uses. We haven't read it yet. So we'll read it here, but we know that, right? God is fighting. If God is for me, who can be against me? You have a heavenly father who is fighting for you every day. He's fighting for relationships in your life. He's fighting for things. Uh, you need to understand that. In fact, in fact, here's the reality. Going back to that last one about God is working in me. Here's the reality. So I have this father who's committed to working in me and working things out of me. He's working in my life. And sometimes, sometimes I don't like what God's working out in my life, so I work against God. I work against God. That was kind of back in the text earlier. Oh, he says you have to, you have to hate you know, your, your spouse and your children and your kids and even yourself. There's times, there's times I just fight against God. I just get in the way and I fight against what God wants to do in my life and God's like, you know, don't fight against me. I'm working in you and working things out in you. And then he says he is fighting for me. Here's the text, Luke 14, verse 31. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able to, uh, with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot become my disciple. And renouncing all that we have and counting the cost really comes down to just simply saying, I trust you, Lord. I know you're working in me. I know you're fighting for me. And I'm not going to fight against you. 
And so God might come into your life and he might fight for a marriage and we're like, I don't want to fight for this marriage. Or he might fight for some relationship at work or he might fight to help you keep a job but you're like, I don't want to keep this job. But we have to trust God when God is fighting for us and that's a lot of what it means to simply count the cost. It's that we, what did we say last week, right? We, we come to Christ, we're yoked to Christ and he's working, doing a work and I'm just there letting him do the work he wants to do in my life. There, I was thinking there's something interesting. There's like three verses that converge here that's really fascinating to me. We were at Winter Jam the other night, Thursday night. Me and Harold and a bunch of the kids here went out to Winter Jam and there were like eight or a bunch of bands and artists. And I, I, I recognized something there at Winter Jam. Like, <clears throat> like, for instance, We the Kingdom. We the Kingdom is a family band. They were like the main band of the night. Really talented. We sing their songs here. Um, we the Kingdom. And so Ed Cash is like the dad and his daughter is Fanny Cash and she's one of the lead singers. Ed Cash uh, talked about being saved at age five but got into high school and uh, got into some addictive things, uh, spent some time in and out of jail. Now he's 31 years sober um, but he had a rough uh, patch of life there for a while but for like the last three decades he's been involved in Christian music and they just formed this band as a family. It's a really cool story. There's another guy named Austin French who grew up as a pastor's kid and he said yet his pastor, his dad beat his wife and kids. And there came a time when he heard someone say to him that, you know, don't judge God by his broken people. And Austin was able to come back around and connect with Christ. Wrote, has some awesome music, actually. I don't know much about him. There, there was Ann Wilson. She's a new up-and-coming star, 20 years old. Ann Wilson lost her brother a few years back, a couple years back. She was talking about that. And then there was Jeremy Camp. He was there, who back in 2001 lost his first wife. I think it was back in 2001, I believe. No pun intended. For those who know, he had a movie called I Still Believe. Um, and I thought about that, how all of these artists have a story. All of these artists have burdens and they have messy lives and they're taking their story and they're using their story to, to help other people with their story, to shape their music and to encourage other people. And I thought about three verses that kind of converge here. Like, like when, you, when you think of these, these three different uh, verses and let me kind of get them in order here like we all have this burden so right we're told to come to christ yoke ourselves to christ come all who are weary and heavy laden and i will give you rest so there's this, it's this invitation to come and find rest at the same time we're told in philippians 2 right that god is working in me and working things out in me so god's working in my life and then the third verse here is this idea that we're called to come and we're supposed to in galatians 6 1 bear the burdens of other people and I thought that's really interesting because sometimes when I come to Christ and I yoke to Christ and, and God does a work in my life, it's not just so I can bear my burden, it's so I can help somebody else bear their burden. That's the way the church works. Like God will help you bear your burden, but he might use me to help you bear, or you to bear my burden. And, and that's just a fascinating way this thing all works out in life. And so we can help each other bear their burdens as Christ works in me and works things out in me and as I yoke myself to Christ. And the reality is, is that I can't love others best if I don't love God most. I can't be used to help you bear your burden if I am not totally sold out to God. If I'm not willing at times to say those things that are going to be hard to hear and are going to be misunderstood, but it's like this is the truth and you need to hear what God's word says in this situation in your life. Wow. 
And this is how we end up with the healthiest relationships um, and we're able to love people best as I allow God to work His love out of me. So God is working in me and God is uh, fighting for me and sometimes we can fight against God. Years ago, Philip Yancey, may I put it on here? Years ago, Philip Yancey wrote about an experience he had with a friend of his named Susan. Susan was a Christian who told Yancey that her husband did not measure up and she was actively looking for other men to meet her needs for intimacy. When Susan mentioned that she rose early each day to spend an hour with the father, Yancey asked her, in your meetings with the father, do any moral issues come up that might influence this pending decision about leaving your husband? He said that Susan bristled. Well, that sounds like the response of a white Anglo-Saxon male. The father and I are into relationship, not morality. Relationship means being wholly supportive and standing alongside me, not judging. And while I'll agree, God is into relationship and wants a deep relationship with you, God is also... He wants you to be his brand ambassador. He wants you to love other people as he loves you. That's the reality. So yeah, it's about relationship. It's about a relationship that helps us live out the gospel and work out our... It's about a relationship that helps us live out this radical transformation that I am now a new creation in Christ. A new creation in Christ. So third lesson today, right? Lesson number one, Jesus' words were often hard to hear and misunderstood. Salvation is extremely transformational. And lesson number three, the context of hate within this passage is relative to my love for God. The context of hate in this passage, when it says you need to hate, you know, your spouse or your kids or your parents or your siblings or whatever, and some of you are good maybe at hating your siblings, not really, you know, but yeah, you gotta pretend like you, you gotta pretend like you do, right? I don't know. But no, the reality is the context of hate in this passage is relative to our love for God. What does that mean? Well, that means that God isn't telling us to literally hate them, right? It's not that he's telling us to literally hate them, but the context of hate here is understood in relationship to my love for God. And remember that big idea again, I can't love others best if I don't love God most. So there's something about my love for God tethered to this passage. The reality then is this. It's not that I hate people, but that I love God most. It just comes down to, don't let anybody stand in between you and your love for God. Don't let any other relationship supplant your love for God and your commitment to God and your ability to let God do a work in your life. Don't let your parents, your kids, your siblings... Your spouse. The toughest one for me on that is probably your spouse. That's a really tough, like, you, you work navigating that one. I understand that's not easy. That's what it says, and how do we navigate? That can be tough. And then here, the reality is not that I truly hate people, but compared to my love for God, others might think I hate them. It might look like I hate them. Let me give you a great example. Here's an illustration Parents can all relate to, right? So your 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 ninth grade daughter, 10th grade daughter comes to you, says, Mom, can I go to a sleepover at my friend's house? You know this girl. Next uh, two weeks on a Friday night. And so you're like, well, okay, well. You you do a little dig and ask a few more questions. Well, you know, who's going to be there? How many are coming? What's... Well, and and you find out after doing a little digging, there's going to be five girls. Oh, and five guys. It's a co-ed sleepover. So you're like, oh, okay, well, 
and you, so you're a little, so you do a little more digging. So how, how are the parents going to chaperone this this night? And you do a little more. And there's some stammering around, and finally, well, you find out that her parents are going to be gone that weekend. <laughs> so pretty soon you're like, yeah, honey, I don't think you can go to that sleepover. Have you ever heard what's going to come next from that daughter as she stomps her feet? You must hate me, right? Now you really love her. And the truth is it might be a week or a month or three months later when something happened at that party that night that comes out and you're like, Mom, thanks for not letting me be at that party. Or maybe it won't be till they're adults and they'll look back at all those moments and say, thank you for loving me when I thought you hated me. I knew you didn't hate me, but I just, you know... And so there's this idea, really, that it's not that I truly hate people, but compared to my love for God, people might look at that and think that I hate them. I think that's interesting. And we often, people often struggle with this in their view of God. They wonder how a loving God can be described in the Bible as being angry or having wrath. Becky Pippard in her book, Hope Has Its Reason, says this. Think about how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. And no one understands how cancerous sin can be than our Father does. And he has really no other option to deal with it, but then to deal with it. And that's where his anger and his wrath comes in. On the cross, that's what he did. He dealt with our sin on the cross. It's not that we're not still living under the curse of sin and in a broken world. And it's not that we don't need to call sin out, but that's... The reality. So back to our paradox, right? That, that sometimes we have to like hate. And it's like, what does it mean to hate? Well, it just means that when we, when we take a certain stand and speak a certain truth, people might look at that and think that we hate. I'll give you a <clears throat> little more weighty issue this morning. This is a current event dealing with more, one of the most hot button issues. And uh, I use this simply because when this story came out, I immediately had this answer come in my head. I'm like, wow. What about this verse? And I thought of this verse immediately, and I also immediately knew how this verse plugged into this series that we were in, or we were going to be going into. And so it was really fascinating. And I don't bring this issue up because I love to talk about this issue, but I bring it up because it is the best way to illustrate this verse this morning. It's the best illustration for this verse. So here's the current event. The current event involves Amy Grant. Maybe you've heard what's been in the news, maybe you haven't. Amy Grant, I, I grew up listening to Amy Grant. She uh, started her musical career when she was a sophomore, like 15 years old, and she's two years older than me. And I loved her music and followed her, been to countless concerts from Amy Grant, and I, I still enjoy her music. And <clears throat> but something came out recently that really disappointed me and made me somewhat sad. Amy Grant has a 54-acre farm, a barn called The Loft, holds lots of events there, and it came out that she was going to host her niece's same-sex wedding at her farm. Now you can imagine that in evangelical circles that's going to create a bit of a stir and there's going to be people that come out and make comments. But here's exactly what she said and she has made kind of overtures and friendly comments to the whole LGBTQ plus community. Here's what, here was her comment. What a gift to our whole family to just widen the experience of our whole family about her niece coming out and uh, marrying this other girl, this other woman. And, uh, 
And she got some, some pushback. Maybe you know Franklin Graham, who does, you know, Operation Shoebox from Samaritan's Purse, the son of the late Billy Graham. And he came out and said, God defines what sin is, not us. And his word is clear that homosexuality is sin. He just made that statement. And what's really fascinating is that news publications came out and basically said, it, Franklin Graham is hateful. Amy Grant's being loving, right? Amy Grant's being loving. In fact, how did Amy Grant defend her choice to do this? What was her answer to those critics? Well, here's what she said. Honestly, from a faith perspective, I do always say, Jesus, you just narrowed it down to two things, love God and love each other. I mean, hey, that's pretty simple. And I mean, how do you argue with that, right? I mean, her credit, Amy, is exactly right. It comes down to two things, loving God and loving other people. Oh, Amy, except for this verse. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my brand ambassador or my disciple. And I can't love others best if I don't love God most. And if I could have a conversation with Amy, that's what I would do. I'd sit down with Amy Grant and I'd say, Amy, what do you do with this verse? When does this verse ever apply? Is there anything that the world loves that God hates? Is there anything that the world embraces that God says, no, that's cancerous sin, that's destructive? When it comes to loving others, the Bible says that we are to speak the truth and speak the truth in love. And again, I can't love others best if I don't love God most. Now, this does leave us with another question hanging out there. How, do, how would we love that person best who is struggling with these desires, right? How do you love someone who's struggling with um, <clears throat> the, this kind of battle in their life? And here's the issue that we have here. I'm going to tell you what's going on with the LGBTQ plus issue that is the, the problem we deal with, okay? What they have done and we don't do this with probably any other sin, they have made this sin an identity. So if you're gay, that's your orientation, that's your identity, that's who you are. That's why I say you can't be a gay Christian, because if you're a Christian, you're a Christian. Your identity is in Christ. You can be a Christian, and you can be taken captive, like Paul says in Colossians, and you can be deceived by the world, and you can think this is an okay lifestyle for a Christian, and you can embrace that and live that, but you're just going to invite conflict into your life. And you're going to be a terrible brand ambassador. You're going to be a hypocrite. Because you're a new creation. You've been called out of a life of sin and flesh. So you can't be a gay Christian because you're a Christian. That's your identity. But uh, yeah, you can embrace that life and, and, and experience a life of conflict. And I was thinking, like we don't do this with anything else. What if someone came out and came to their family and said, family, you got to come out. I'm a shoplifter. Like, I, I know it's not right, I know it's not natural, but I'm just a shoplifter and this is just how God made me and wired me and I just take things that aren't mine. You know, it's like we would never, you know, and I don't, maybe that's a, you might say it's a poor, but I, I don't think it's a poor comparison because it's just the reality is that's what we do with this whole agenda is that they have, they have made this their identity and when they make it their identity, what can't you do? Well, anything, anytime you criticize it, it's a personal attack on them and you're deemed as hateful. The question is, how do we navigate this, and how do we love those people? What answer do we have for those people who struggle with that? Like, if you're a believer, it's not, it's not the desires of being a new creation in Christ. They don't, they don't jive with that. They're up here in your 
fleshly mind and your old man thinking, you're wired a certain way up here. And when you got saved, you didn't get a brand new brain and get rewired instantly. And God may never rewire you. You can pray for God to change you. He may never. So what does someone like that do that lives with this? What's our answer to them? I was thinking about that, right? Someone that struggles with this, how do, how do we, what kind of answer do you have for them when they say, that's just who I am? And What's our answer? Well, the answer is actually the same to the, to the Christian woman who was abandoned by her husband and she's a single mom and, a, and she's now divorced. Or it's, Excuse me, it's the, it's the same answer to the Christian couple who has been through several miscarriages and can't give birth and is even having trouble adopting. It's the same answer to the Christian parents who lost their child at a young age. No ch- parent should ever have to bury their own child, right? But, but you've, got this, this, um, you've got this issue uh, where, where how do they handle that when they've lost a child? What do you tell them and what do you tell the person with a debilitating disease that's battling cancer or some, maybe they're paralyzed. What's the answer to all of those people? It's the same answer to this person who struggles with these desires. And see, the reason is, is that none of those other instances, we haven't made that their identity, but we have with this LGBTQ. So what's the answer? The answer is real simple. Excuse me. The answer to the Christian struggling with any need, is simply this, Christ is enough. That's the reality. And anybody that says, well, I've just got these desires and I can't do anything about it, and this is just who I am, you're just simply saying Christ isn't enough. And I'm telling you today, whatever your struggle is, and maybe your struggle is not the same, and maybe your struggle isn't as heavy and your burden's not as great, I'm just telling you, Christ is enough for every one of us in this room. Whatever you're facing today, Christ is enough. And for the person who doesn't know Christ, the person who's a sinner, it's a different dynamic because sinners just sin. And their, their identity, they're not a new creation. They don't have the new creation desires. They're not going to have that conflict like the other person will. But the answer to them is simply the same, that Christ is all you need. Christ is all you need. And, and I, honestly, I've, I've seen this many times. People who, honestly, people who struggle with this, with this lifestyle that come to Christ, they're more likely to leave it all behind. Because they come to Christ and they realize Christ is everything they need. And they can embrace that. So just, a, just, just, just again, in order to love others best, I need to love God most. How do I love those who are struggling or those I am struggling to love? How about that? How do I love those who are struggling or those that I am struggling? Like I'm called to love this person and I'm struggling to love them at work or wherever it might be. And here's just simple, five simple things. Show them respect. We can always respect people. You don't disrespect someone, but you love them like Christ did. Jesus never disrespected anybody. And then um, walk in their shoes, which I thought Jesus did when he went to the cross. He walked in our shoes. He lived our experience. And, and we need to, to stop and, and put ourselves in their shoes and think about what they're going through and understand them all while we give them the truth and try to lead them. Count the cost. Count the cost. Understand the cost of speaking the truth and why you do it, because you love God most. Because you love God most. And then speak the truth. Boldly speak the truth and then show the way. Don't be a hypocrite in your own life. Be a new creation, be a brand ambassador that shows people that Christ is enough in what you're going through and be willing to share your story like all those artists at Winter Jam. Share your story of what you're going through with other people. Show them that Christ is enough and, and help them understand that their struggle, their need is not their identity 
but their identity can be totally wrapped up in who Christ is. That's not the most enjoyable topic to bring up, but you know, I know I deal with it more and more all the time. I know a couple people right now, and it's like, it's like you have interaction with these people, and um, you don't have to put them down. You don't, and if they don't know Christ, their number one need is to know Christ, because Christ is all they need, right? And um, something to think about, something to pray about in our life. The personal challenge for us this week is make every effort to love the person even as you hate how they treat you. If you've got a person that you feel called to love in this love-hate relationship and you're struggling to love them, make every effort to love that person. Even as you hate how they treat you, separate the two. This is how they treat me, but I'm a brand ambassador for Christ and I'm going to love them as Christ loves me. And of course, let's always stand for the truth. And one last thing, beware of anything or anyone who can supplant your love for and tr- or trust in, in God. That's really what's going on in that text and that whole love thing. Like, just in any relationship, make sure you're connected with Christ and no one stands between you and Christ. And again, the toughest one of those is when you're in a marriage relationship and your spouse is opposed to that. I know that can be really a, a these aren't easy things. But hopefully you understand what Jesus is saying there. We're not really called to hate but we're called to love God most so we can love others best. Let's pray. God, thank you for today's message. Thank you for these words and so much in here I know and so much that weighed on me going through this and um, that ending topic. This message isn't about that last illustration or topic. It's just about any relationship we have that we're navigating, any love-hate relationship where we're called to love and we have a hard time because we just feel this sense of hate. Uh, for whatever reason. Help us love others the way you love. Help us treat others the way you would with respect and dignity. I'll always speak the truth. And as the scripture says, sometimes, sometimes um, people will look at us and they'll think we're haters because we simply stand for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I realized that there was one last thing there I didn't even touch on. If you want to read that when you go home, I don't think I put it on the screen, but there is a fascinating uh, paradox there at the end in, um, let me just, uh, this, this, this fascinating paradox, it's, it's a parallel passage to this message. Oh, I totally forgot it. Oh, it's, it's in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. And this is when Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. So Jesus, the Prince of Peace, actually saying, I didn't come to bring peace. There's times Jesus came to bring uh, division and clarity and truth, to wield the sword of truth in our, in our life. So very good. Um, yeah, let's stand together. Let's sing on the way out. Why not? Let's light. Light.